Hi, I'm Hannah Bailey. And I'm Tefer Jemian. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! yeah! So with us today, we have Brendan Kiley. Brendan is a New York Times bestselling author um, of All American Boys, Tradition, The Last True Love Story, and The Gospel of Winter. We're, we're so happy to have him with us today to talk with us a little about writing um, mm-hmm. YA novels. No, I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Thank you so much for, uh, yeah, for coming on the show. Yeah. Um, so first off, Brendan, could you tell us a little bit about when and how you started writing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, um, I I appreciate when I get asked this question um, by young people in particular because I can share with them that I really started writing when I was in middle school. Um, mm. And it was a thing that it's kind of a strange beginning because um, I really loved rap music. And uh, some friends and I thought we, that we would start a rap group. Um, and we were awful. Just yeah. awful. <laughs> and we had no business doing that for a host of reasons. <laughs> but uh, um, but what I was doing while I was uh, making that uh, terrible attempt was uh, working on my lyrics, right? And right. Mm-hmm. As yeah. working on these lyrics, um, it became apparent to me uh, through a variety of different reasons that really these lyrics were poems. And okay. so um, as I abandoned that uh, career choice. Mm-hmm. I um, and I moved into high school. I was someone who was an athlete, and I was heavily involved in the in sports and whatnot. But I was writing poetry, kind of like a journal that I would occasionally dip into to, frankly, get to know the me on the inside, the emotional mm-hmm. landscape that I was trying to understand. And I think the reason why I like sharing this is because in the long run, the way to getting to a novel, the way to getting to writing as my career now, um, mm-hmm. in some ways I'm still that same child because I write to explore the emotional landscape that I'm trying to understand. Um, and I'm usually trying to address questions with emotional answers. Mm. And um, all of my novels really, in one way or another, begin with a handful of questions that I try to answer through writing a novel. And so for my first book, The Gospel of Winter, um, I was looking around at the uh, my life as, a, as someone who had just left college and had entered the, the professional work world, mm-hmm. and it felt like there was an enormous amount of violence in the community around me that I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And one of those elements of violence was the revelations around the scandal of abuse in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. just that priests had been abusing children, but that the institution itself had been covering it up. And so coming from an Irish Catholic family in Boston, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. I had a lot of questions. And um, it's, it seemed like the way to address that was to try to get into the, the, the space of what a family who's going through that kind of turmoil, um, you know, is, is, is feeling and, and experiencing. And that's how I began 
writing the book in the same way that I was trying to address the politics, the emotions, the uh, big questions that I had when I was 13 years old right. um, through writing poems. Very Neat. cool. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I, I actually, um, I was also in Boston around that time and remember it uh, so distinctly. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it was intense. My, I felt like my family was at civil war sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'd be sitting, mm-hmm. family and friends, sitting at a table and, you know, some people at the table saying, we've got to double down and, and show our faith and other people saying, I'm never walking into a church ever again. And, and <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, <laughs> and in, in my mind, and again, this is one of the reasons why I think YA literature is so exciting. Um, I, I was thinking that, so I was experiencing that as a young 20 something adult, right. but, mm-hmm. um, but to situate it in the, in the, to situate those questions and, and that turmoil in the, emotional landscape and psychology of a teen, I think provides an opportunity for all of us of all ages to kind of enter into the situation with a little bit of naivete, a little bit of maybe a bit more hope than cynicism and um, and see our way through that uh, with that perspective. So it, it, it seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, that actually leads really well into our second question, uh, which is why why YA? Why why do you write for teenagers? <laughs> why why is that important to you? Well, okay, so I, I I'm so curious because y- your your podcast is about YA, and and I and <laughs> as a as a writer, I'm really interested in why you're interested in YA. <laughs> Boy, he turned the tables uh, I, I, on I, us. I, I I don't want to dodge the question. I will answer, but I'm I'm curious. I'm curious from your perspective how you got into YA because I wonder if there isn't some connection. Yeah, sure. that's a really that you are you are so thoughtful and also sneaky. Um, <laughs> so I think, I mean, we both really like YA. So I think I think it both comes from why we like YA, and we can also talk about that. But um, we like YA, and we're interested in kind of talking about like i think ya gets talked down a lot and uh yeah. gets underestimated uh mm-hmm. but but it has really important things to say and we yeah. were interested in kind of exploring the things ya has to say for our tagline is for people of all ages right yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i think i think for me it started as kind of a, a personal project and uh I did a lit degree and sort of got very far away from reading the books I like to read um, mm-hmm. while doing that and right. uh, and was writing a lot and, and was just kind of exploring like what I was interested in and just realized after graduating university and then had a kid and then was just home a lot and was like, well, these are the books I really like reading and these are the books that are really kind of nourishing my soul and helping me yeah. develop emotionally um, in ways that I maybe missed out on doing as a kid <laughs> um, yeah and I, I think a lot of it's been around you know there's a lot of conversations around emotional intelligence around mindfulness around things that do put you in touch with how you developed emotionally yeah um, and for me it's really been reading YA lit and children's lit as a way of sort of exploring that development and how it happens um, and then I knew Hannah also read a lot of YA, so I was like, do you want to turn this into a, a broader conversation? And I said, <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> right. Well, but that makes so much sense to me because I, 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 I stumbled into YA, but now that I'm here, I'm incredibly grateful because 
well, really for so many of the, the same reasons. And and one of the, the reasons why I love being in the world of YA literature are all of the colleagues and the people that I meet and uh, kind of, you know, we're, everyone's not the same, you know, they're not the same person. And of course there are, there are problems in politics and everything like anything in life, but, but there, but there is something I, joyous about being part of a shared enterprise that prioritizes in in my opinion a kind of immediate emotional experience through reading and writing um and storytelling that i also find nourishing and uh empowering and exciting um in ways that uh that i i think i had i had uh, detoured from i mean I, i was um thinking a lot recently about how i fell in love with reading and how i fell in love with writing and I remember, uh, you know, stories that that now in my, you know, or or, or ten years ago, you know, after my um, uh, immediate graduate school exit, I, you know, I I would have I wouldn't have talked about those books. How you know, who who would ever you know speak critically about Lord of the Rings? And um, and yet, you know, why deny that thirteen-year-old uh, boy who took time out of his beach holiday? to get swept up in the dream of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's something pretty powerful about reading that I, that I, that I don't want to deny anyone now and in particular myself. And so that's a long way of saying <laughs> that I get into YA because I, I sat down to write this book about the scandal of abuse in the Catholic church. And I thought I was writing an adult novel, but, but I wasn't because of the way that I was writing it and the priorities I had set out for myself were in the book. And I discovered in the process of, pitching the book to publishers that in fact many people saw it as a YA novel and my agent said well hey Brendan right now you're teaching high school surprise surprise maybe this is the right place for you <laughs> I said <laughs> oh, oh yeah that does make sense yes <laughs> these are these are these are the kinds of readers that I'm used to communicating with every day on, a, on another level as a teacher and it makes perfect sense that I would want to communicate with them through my through my writing as well mm-hmm. um, and and that's how I kind of stumbled into YA literature. And in, like I said, I'm so grateful to be here because of all the people, of all the priorities. And and I also think there's a lot of exciting political conversation going on in the YA world. A lot of um, recognition of uh, pluralistic society uh, through storytelling that I really appreciate. Because um, let's put the people first instead of the aesthetics. There's a lot that I can go on about here, but I... I <laughs> fear that I talked too much already. So, <laughs> um, I yeah, I love what you're saying about storytelling and 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 putting people ahead of aesthetics. I think I, I really like that. We've talked about that a lot, actually. I think it even came up in our first episode that one of the things that that um, at least attracts me to YA, and I think Hannah agreed with this, is that there's a premium put on the storytelling rather mm. than a premium put on sort of writerly gimmicks um which Mm -hmm. which for me especially when I was coming out of uh the world of literature in the university was just so tired of people talking about their aesthetics and their gimmicks and there's something so refreshing about going back to putting the people first and the story first and yeah yeah um, just finding the best ways to communicate those because that will make you write well. I I think so. I agree. Would you talk a little about some of the books, authors, stories? I know you just mentioned Lord of the Rings um, that have influenced you as a writer, either as an adult or as a teen. 
Yeah, sure. So um, Teen Brendan was not um, well-read or widely read, and um, it's it's embarrassing. And um, and I I think back to how I was not introduced to a wide variety of literature. Um, and so a lot of the YA literature that I, I've read is really uh, – they're books that I've read as an adult. And um, and I I think about that a lot because I think about um, – so when I was growing up, you know, the the – well, first of all, I'll, I'll say this. When I was in middle school, I didn't really read books. Um, I Though I was – uh, writing poetry, and though I was, you know, uh, trying to start a rap group, <laughs> the um, the uh, experience I had in school was one where reading wasn't really a high, a high priority. I can't remember a single book that was assigned to me in school from sixth to eighth grade. I uh, don't remember my teachers' names. I don't, you know, it's like a blank spot, and that's maybe more typical of too many boys, but also it's uh, it's kind of sad. Because it's the it's really an important time to capture people as readers, and so I was fortunate that um, I had parents who cared, and I had uh, a, a different experience as I was going into the high school. And Lord of the Rings was was our summer reading, and that's how I got swept up into it. And after that, the books that really captured my imagination were books like Catcher in the Rye and A Separate Piece. But now all three of those books that I've mentioned, if we count the Lord of the Rings as one book, are written by white men and primarily about white-ish. <laughs> man um, and uh, and that's a problem that's a huge problem and um, and I I didn't have the wherewithal or the or the life experience to recognize you know how limiting that was and how um, uh, overly dominant that narrative was um, and so it's not until later that I, that I really discovered again the vast array of books in YA that are that are really showing us the, the, the uh, an image of a pluralistic society. Mm-hmm. So reading books like uh, more recently, reading books like um, The Astonishing Color of After or Love, Hate, and Other Filters or uh, Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda or uh, um, History is All You Left at Me uh, or you know this this all these kinds of books i think are books now that i that that nourish me and and influence me in ways that i wish i had had as a teen that would have expanded my world when i when i needed that expanding a lot more mm-hmm. um as i moved on in high school you know there are tons of other stories that interested me but i i wanted to, i want to emphasize the fact that I, that i think it's not until i was an adult that i recognized how limiting all the stories i was given were mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you've actually started to touch on my next question. You're very good at like anticipating our segues. <laughs> um, so I've noticed something that I've noticed in in the work of yours that I've read is that a lot of your narrators and protagonists uh, start out with a lot of ignorance about their privilege and then kind of become awakened to it as the story progresses. Uh, how mm-hmm. much of that comes from your own experiences? Where Where does that come from? Well... I will always be uh, more ignorant than I am aware. I think, uh, regardless of what it is that we're talking about, and I think it's Im- it's important to to remember that, um, especially when so often I'm given reflections of an idealized self in media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for me, I feel like it's important to um, unpack the privilege of the life experience of. Um, you know, uh, cis, heterosexual, uh, not disabled white men like me, 
Um, I, I, when I was a teacher and I was looking to, I was teaching 10th grade English and I was looking to, um, try to create a more race conscious curriculum. Um, I was, you know, trying to, you know, make sure that the, the syllabus I was providing the students was, uh, was very diverse, but, but I was, then I wanted to be very conscious about, well, if I'm going to include a white main character's story, what is it, what is it, what does it mean to be race conscious? And if I'm, if I'm going to in, uh, include that, uh, or a male or a male, uh, perspective, what does it mean to be conscious of that? And truthfully, I, I was, um, struggling to find some texts that were, that would do what I hope to include in the curriculum that I was trying to, to build. So it felt like that's a good place to start writing as well. So after the gospel of winter, the books that, that follow are books that are, that are much more conscious with, with, that perspective that you mentioned in mind, thinking about how to unpack notions of privilege, how to address um, ignorance, and and maybe find a wholer self by gaining a greater understanding of humility. Um, those are, uh, and and as I say that now, I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe it's just my Catholic school education that stuck with me, but <laughs> but I think it's I think it's more than that. I think it's uh, I think it's those are the kinds of stories I want to tell. That's whether it's Quinn and All American Boys or it's Bax and Jules um, in yeah. tradition um, uh, or Teddy Hendricks in the Last Year Love Story. I, I think they uh, they're all telling stories of and and there are still journeys where we grow to meet our wholer self absolutely yeah we were just actually before before you called i'm rereading tradition uh which hannah just read and we were just talking about how neat it is in it um that jewels and backs are both on that journey and that it's not just backs getting educated by a woman but you know mm. also jewels learning from from her community and from javi and um yeah and from backs also who has a different Different uh, set of disprivileged. Yeah, a different privileged landscape. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just that that's something we both really appreciate about that book. Yeah. Yeah. And the other the other thing I really appreciated about The Last True Love Story was how it's not a story that you expect to be about privilege. Mm-hmm. And then it's just woven in in really in really interesting ways that Absolutely. I that I liked a lot. Yeah. Because yeah. you it's true, you don't often get stories about where the protagonist is white, especially a white boy who is that are concerned with issues of privilege so yeah yeah it's nice to have that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i i really appreciate that i don't know i i rarely heard anyone make connections between the last true love story and either tradition or all american boys so it means so much to me that you just (laughs) i really appreciate that (laughs) oh yeah it was it was super like it's it's subtle but it's very there that he's starting to to think about the privilege that he has, and I really liked that because uh, I was not expecting it to to deal with that kind of stuff. And I was like, "Oh, this is yeah, yeah, well done." Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of last true love story and tradition, and uh, and how they're related to each other, and I have to confess, some of this is because I have those are the two that I'm super familiar with, and I have not yet uh, read the other two. Um, yeah, but no worries, they, they're they're on my list though. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, both the last two love story and tradition have um, sexual encounters that are explicitly consensual. Uh, the narrative is driven and shaped by communication, by consent. I'm thinking especially in last true love story, which um, 
the whole scene is just can I kiss you here yes can I kiss you here yes um and it's so beautiful and refreshing and honestly very rare in any English literature I'm curious about when and how that became an important element of your writing. That, okay, um, it, it's we're not on video, so you can't see, but I just got goosebumps because um, I uh, I really, really appreciate you mentioning that scene in The Last Two Love Story, and it's, of course, um, the echoes of it in tradition, and I'll, I'll talk about yeah. that in one second. But um, it it really bothers me that uh when we talk about traditional quote-unquote uh love stories so often there's a highly romanticized vision of what it means to kind of fall for each other or the the stumbling process to realizing that maybe you two like each other and um and there's a kind of assumed um epilogue maybe that they're uh, sexual intimacy is just going to work out mm-hmm. where that to me sounds feels dangerous and that if we don't provide models of consent and we don't provide models of real intimate vulnerability in which people um, take care of each other's vulnerability um, in those moments then you know how do how can we expect our readers to to act that way in real life um, and I, so I've been concerned with it for a, a while because when I was doing work writing the Gospel of Winter, I was of mm-hmm. course concerned with issues of consent and um, and and what it means to abuse power. But the, for lack of a better word, the villainy of an abusive uh, adult, um, uh, you know, holding that power over a child, is a, is a fairly extreme situation. But um, as I was uh, writing the last true love story in uh, 2014 and 2015, I was thinking a lot about a, a world in which we we weren't seeing many models of consent on a on a more on a less drastically severe you know level, um, and and I and it was important to me to include that if I was going to write a, a love story, I wanted to write a love story that I would consider feminist. And if it's a love story that's feminist, it has to be one in which I think communication and consensus building is clear. And for me, that's what love is really all about. It's about listening. It's about finding ways to open yourself up to meet the other person who's with you as much as possible. Yeah. So that um, you're, uh, y- you have to ask, hey, can I kiss you here? Because if they say no and you proceed, that's not love. Yeah. And I, and so for me, I think that that's that's why it's really important. And that too, to come full circle, then to tradition, if I'm telling a story about um, an institution that has problems covering up uh, systemic sexual harassment and abuse, and the the kinds of communities in which, in particular, there are some guys who feel like they can get away with uh, harassment and abuse. And, and, and almost think of it as a game and don't even recognize the danger uh, and, and harm that they're causing. Um, and I'm, and I'm going to show some situations in which there is real pain. I also think I have to do justice to the story and show moments in which consent is a part of the communication. And sometimes that means no. And a person hears it and says, oh, I, I hear you. 
And so I wanted to make sure I include moments like that in tradition. So it's not just all the horror. There are also moments of, hey, this is what it looks like when someone's listening. Yeah, amen. Yeah, Again, you I can't see us, but there's just been like there's nods. There's been a lot of like yes all the way around the table. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, especially because I feel like I feel like in all writing, but in, in YA and YA romances, there's a lot of things that are coded as romantic that are non-consensual to mm-hmm. varying degrees, even in small ways. Yeah. So it's very refreshing yeah. to read these models of of active consent seeking yeah um yeah. like not just listening to no but actively seeking consent mm-hmm. um yeah which yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's so important for for kids to read that i think I, I i noticed it so intently in the last true love story because to an extent i expected in tradition you know yeah. um, because yeah. it is a, explicitly about consent and assault and and um those lines that aren't actually blurry and uh, uh, in the last true love story, it's just built in as part of what a relationship, what relationship building looks like. And that's, um, yeah, just just lovely. <laughs> no, I, no I, I, I really I really appreciate that. And it's interesting because the last true love story often, I think, think people, uh, they were expecting one kind of because of the title, mm-hmm. frankly, uh, genre of storytelling. And it's not that. And and I don't mind. I think that, I mean, I was able to write the story that I wanted to write, but I but I really appreciate what you're saying because oddly, it, those moments of consent, of active consent, do become noticeable. But um, I think we would be uh, doing us all a favor if we made more of those kinds of moments uh, possible. I'm I'm thinking about even like Netflix TV shows that are maybe based on some YA books and how they portray um, some pretty terrible situations. But but how because you have that platform, how remarkable it would be to 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 present us with those positive models as well. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. So switching gears a little bit, um, one thing we noticed in in a few well the the two that we're both the most familiar with, I'm like. No, I'm like an eighth of the way through um, uh, All American Boys, but we've both read Tradition and uh, uh, The Last True Love Story. And both of those have not just absent, but like conspicuously absent parent figures. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role that parents play in your novels? Yes. I, I'm laughing because um, my, my father, uh, when he was um, reading The Last True Love Story... He said, Brendan, is there something you're trying to tell me? Because in in the Gospel of Winter, the father is uh, an absent uh, asshole. <laughs> um, in the, sorry, I don't know if I can use that word or not. But <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, the, uh, in All American Boys, the uh, Quinn, the character, the narrator that I wrote, uh, his father uh, died in uh, the war in Afghanistan. In the Last True Love Story, the father, you know, is we discover things about the father and, and, and he's absent and, and, and dead from the very beginning of the book. Um, and there are almost no parents in, uh, in tradition. So, so my, my father's like, is there something we need to discuss? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and no, no, I, I feel very grateful that I, I have a great relationship with, with both of my parents re- remarkably. And, um, and, um, and I think, Partly why there are these kinds of figures in my books um, is I want to ground the stories in the teen lives, 
and there are these different scenarios that that enable that to happen. I I also think that that sometimes when we're in a at least for me in my teen years, though I had a decent relationship with my parents at that time, they weren't the people that I would go to to work out my my life's mm-hmm. you know questions and, and and problems. It was all focused around my peers. Um, and and I think to be true to the to the age of my narrators, I, I have to do that. I also think though that you know there there's room for positive adult figures in in stories, and that's why I I like the role of the grandfather in the last true love story because he may not be a parent, but he's a he's kind of a parental figure, um, and he certainly is a is a complicated. Um, uh, character in the story, but he, but he has, he has wisdom to offer yeah. um, the young people. And likewise, um, there's a teacher in tradition uh, who's who's someone that Jules connects with, mm-hmm. who quite honestly in earlier drafts had a larger role, but um, for the sake of storytelling and whatnot, her her space in the in the story diminished. Um, which I'm kind of bummed about, but, <laughs> but the nature of how the stuff works. Um, and in All American Boys, there are some teachers who play a fundamental role if on uh, Quinn's side of the story, and there are some uh, parents and, and other adult figures on Rashad's side of the story that play a fundamental role. It, it, it's a tricky it's a tricky line to to walk, I think. But but it is it, it, I, I really appreciate your question because there's there's a consciousness behind leaving so many of those those particular roles absent um to allow the teens to do some of that working out themselves um and i think that's i think that's real yeah yeah yeah, i like i that makes a lot of sense to me um Yeah, I think it came up just because the last couple of books we've reviewed have had very prominent parental relationships. Yes. And also because I'm a parent, I always kind of glom onto those and go like, what can I learn? What can I learn? Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Understandable. We've talked about this in various um, to various extents throughout this conversation. Uh, But you have these characters who do have wide breadths of experiences, and uh, you've been especially praised for writing female characters well, by us, as well as by several of your co-panelists at YaFest. Um, I'm just curious about what your process is for writing identities or lived experiences that aren't your own. Yeah, no, I appreciate that question very much, and, and I, um, I think it's really important... <laughs> uh, you know, I, earlier in the in our conversation, we were talking about the value of listening, and I think as a writer, listening has to be really one of our first skills, um, and and this and a skill that we continue to hone and sharpen and nurture uh, and practice um, throughout our lives as writers, and frankly as human beings. Mm-hmm. But I. Um, in order to write experiences that are not my own, I think there is a risk we have to take because it would be really boring if every character in every book was Brendan Kiley. It's like that scene from being John Malkovich, you know, and it's like they're in Malkovich's head and it's like, Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. No, that would be so insane. Um, we, have to, we have to include, you know, uh, the multiplicity of people that are in our lives. But I... Um, in order to do so, I think it requires a lot of work, um, being accountable 
to those realities that are not our own. So for me, I do as much as I can to try to get work down on the page and and see the and envision the characters uh, as much as I can. But then quite a bit of my drafting process is asking um, uh, people uh, for their patience <laughs> to read through and to and to comment and not just comment on the craft as we were talking earlier the the aesthetics but to really be very harsh on me to to critique the creation of the characters um because i i i know that if i'm writing especially because i primarily write realistic fiction i really want to do my best to try to do justice to the realities that might look like that out there in the world and i can't do that if if i think i can do it on my own that that just sounds dangerous and so for me a lot of the process of of writing is a process of asking people for help and um and then whenever anybody asks me for help do that (laughs) so that we're you know working on this all together um uh because i think that's essential and i you know i i i do my best to write these characters but for example in tradition i had nine different women reading over my shoulder throughout the writing process, um, many of whom I'm, I, I thank uh, by name in the <laughs> yeah. um, uh because it's, it's essential. Um, it's really essential, I think, to think of writing as a communal act, not as an individual act. I also had this really nice mental image of Brendan working at a computer with just like nine muses sort of in a, in a half circle. <laughs> <leader>. <laughs> exactly. Some of, those, some of those muses are like, uh, hey, Brendan, uh, let me just point out where you're a jerk. <laughs> Think about things this way. It's like, oh, yes, thank you. Thank you, muse of accountability. That's great. <laughs> I mean... We all need people to point out when we're being a jerk sometimes. So. I think we all need that muse of accountability. <laughs> yeah. um, that actually, that brings us to the end of our, our time. Um, Brendan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was really fun. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. This is also our first author interview, um, which is very exciting. We have a few more ah. coming at some point, but... Um, oh. My gosh. Well, in the, in the spirit of what we were just talking about, if I can help in any way, let me know. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. It's really been really been awesome speaking with both of you, Hannah and Tepper. Your your uh, your enthusiasm is infectious, so thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you yeah. so much. Thanks so much. Oh, hi. Um, can you wait on it? Oh, Hi, yeah, um, I'm just gonna wash my hands here, uh, I know what you're wondering, what are you doing in my bathroom? Well, this is very easy to explain, hold hold on, let me, let me just blow dry my hair here. Uh, I'm here to tell you about Lasers on the Ride podcast, it's available wherever you get your podcast, it's a mix of comedy, uh, interviews, and... The existential drama that only real life can bring. Now I'm gonna go take a shower. Goodbye. On September 19th, 1993, NBC aired the first ever episode of Frasier, a spin off series about psychiatrist Dr. Frasier Crane, the much loved Seattle shrink from Cheers. Ten days earlier, a baby was born. 
a baby who, we'd come to learn, was destined to drop out of college and launch his own podcast network. That baby is me, Tom Zalatni, and this is a terrible, terrible idea. Tune in to They're Calling Again, right here on the Upford Network. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yapodcast and individually at tefferbear and at thebalesosaurus. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon has an awesome bonus where for the first month, they'll give us an extra 50% on top of whatever you donate. So your pledges this month will go that much further towards helping us keep the lights on. You can also get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, and by sharing this episode with a friend. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Next week, we're going to be reading and reviewing Tradition by Brendan Kiley. So uh, pick that up and read it and get ready. Mm-hmm.